Hello and welcome to episode 70 of the Thinking LSAT podcast in Los Angeles, California. I'm Nathan Fox. With me in Washington, D.C. is Ben Olson. Ben, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks. Yeah, we got a big uh, list of emails to get through today, so um, I guess maybe we just dive right in? Yeah, I I do have a funny story from that book I was telling you about uh, last week. Nice. The book, again, is Make It Stick by Peter Brown, and it's uh, on successful learning techniques. But today's story that I was listening to on the way into work was pretty funny. Um, I guess uh, officers, you know, they train for a lot of different scenarios, which is totally unsurprising. And one of the scenarios that they train for is to get a gun out of someone else's hand, right? And apparently the way... The way to do this is to hit their wrist, which loosens their grip, and then you grab the, then you wrestle the gun away somehow. And officers practice this all the time uh, with fellow officers. And what you do is you hit their wrist, you grab the gun, and then you give it back to them so you can do it again. Anyways, this one officer uh, was doing his job or whatever and encountered this situation where someone had a gun and he hit the person's wrist and took it out of their hand and then reflexively gave it back to them. (laughs) And, but they were both surprised. Uh, The person was like, what the heck, you know, uh, that it actually gave him an opportunity to hit his wrist again and get the gun back. (laughs) But, uh, the reason for telling this story, aside from the fact that it's interesting, amusing. I'm glad it didn't turn out to be a worse situation, but the person was saying, look, you got to, you got to practice what you're ultimately going to do because what you practice is what you are going to do. And it's applicable to this situation, but also to the LSAT, of course, because if you practice one way, that's how you're going to take the test. So, you know, you don't do 35-minute sections. If you don't do full-length tests, which we've been saying forever, then you're not going to be able to do them the way you want to do them. You're going to do them the way you maybe practice other problems without maybe, you know, considering time or dealing with people around you and stuff like that. Yeah, I had someone in class last night asking me, you know, oh, well, I don't really need to use a bubble sheet right now, do I? Yeah. And I'm like, well... I mean, you can do whatever you want, but um, on the day, you're going to have to use a score sheet. You're going to have to bubble in the bubbles within the 35 minutes. So, you know, do you want to practice not bubbling in your bubble sheet? I don't, you're going to have to do it. Why don't, why wouldn't we just do it right now? That actual, the real way. Yeah, that's actually interesting. I uh, took a test the other day that I hadn't taken before and I took I used a bubble sheet, and just out of curiosity, I noted what time I finished the two pages, because what I do is I do two pages of questions, and then I bubble in the answers for those two pages, and then I go on. That's recommended, yeah, instead of doing every single question, going back and forth to your bubble sheet all the time, right? Do you do two facing pages, and then bubble in all the bubbles? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm So I was doing two facing pages and then I was and then I noted what time it was on my watch. I mean I was I had a digital watch. I was just I wasn't using the analog watch. So but whatever. So I used <clears throat> I noted what time it was and then I bubbled in my answers and then I wrote down the time again and it was consistently 
like 28 to 30 seconds. I was surprised how consistent it was, and I was surprised that it was that long. I didn't realize that it took 30 seconds to bubble in the answers for two pages of questions. Wow, yeah. So that's two minutes for the entire section. Maybe that's unusually slow. Maybe I'm being unusually cautious to make sure I don't mistakes make mistakes when I transfer my answers. I don't know, but it was consistently 30 seconds. So I was like, okay, that's, I would have estimated 30 seconds for the whole section or maybe a minute, but I guess for me, it's two minutes. It's a pretty good place to invest your time, by the way. You know, I hear it all the time in class. People will say, Hey, can we do number 17? And then I start explaining it and then they're like, Oh, oh yeah, I just bubbled the wrong answer. And it's like, um, okay, that's, that's pretty tragic because you spent all that time doing the question, you know, got it right. Mm-hmm. Except mm-hmm. for then now you're on the on the score, you're not going to get a point for it, yeah, uh, because you you failed to transcribe it correctly. So I mean, if it does take you two minutes to do the entire section worth of transcribing, um, so be it. I mean, that's that's where your points are coming from from bubbling in the correct bubble. So uh, mm-hmm. I would say that's one area where you really don't want to be skimping or rushing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the other thing is I started the book uh, Alexander Hamilton by Ron Chernow. Um, it may seem a little irrelevant to the LSAT, but I, I started reading it because of the musical Hamilton, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's this is the book that actually sort of inspired or motivated Lin-Manuel to write that musical. And it's a really good book, and I think for anyone who wants to be a lawyer, it could be inspiring. Uh, He was a lawyer and obviously did a ton of uh, amazing stuff in his short life. So anyways, just another book out there for anyone who has, let's see, uh, 35 hours to spend on audiobooks. Ben Olsen just never stops bettering himself. <laughs> you, you can put it that way, but I find it interesting. It's it's a good it's good stuff. So awesome, cool. Okay, so let's dive into this first uh, email here. This is from a former student of mine who is going to be anonymous, and she uh, had some thoughts about our discussions that we've had, uh, especially last episode when, where we had a, a brief discussion about big law and Ben and I were kind of doing some uh, speculating and the student uh, chimed in with uh, quite a thorough uh, email. So let's just go through these. Uh, we'll go through this bit by bit here. Um, I have some general comments and then a bunch of info that you can pass on for students who really care about being able to get a big law job. Warning. After three years in law school, my ability to be brief has only gotten worse. So this is, yeah, a very thorough, uh, very lawyerly type of an email here. Yeah. Oh, and I guess I should say that this student uh, went to a school, uh, top 20 school. It's not Harvard, Stanford, or Yale, but it is a top 20 school, and she is now starting uh, at a big law firm in the AMLAW top 30. So she did not go to a top 14 school and she is going into big law. So here's here are her comments. The listener's question from last time was, is it possible to go to a non-top 14 school and graduate, pass the bar, get a full-time job in big law and pay off loans? And so the student says, graduate, yes, obviously. Pass the bar, yes. 
While rankings do track bar passage rates, it's not causal. I think that the learning that happens during law school has little, if any, bearing on whether you'll pass the bar or not. She says, big caveat, I don't know whether I pass the bar yet or not. Ha ha. But, I mean, she's obviously going to pass because she went to a top 20 school and did very well there and prepped hard for the bar. And, you know, those kinds of people just don't really fail the bar. What do you think about that, Ben? Oh, I agree with this completely. When she says, I think that the learning that happens during law school has little, if any, bearing on whether you pass the bar, 100% true. I studied for the bar by taking practice questions that I was going to encounter and doing them, both for the essay portion and for the multi-state portion. At least that's what I had to do for Virginia. And it was basically like memorization and learning how to write essays the way they want them written. Yeah. Did you do a bar prep class or did you just do it on your own? I did an online class, but it was, I mean, honestly, 90% of my time was spent doing multiple choice questions for the multi-state portion and then doing uh, just sample essays. Because I actually tried the class at first, and I submitted an essay, and the guy wrote me back, and he's like, yeah, 50%. I was like, okay, I suck. And then someone said, well, here's a a short book. Because I don't know. Did you end up taking the bar? No, hell no. Oh, okay. So uh, someone gave – like they give you these huge books that have – the law for Virginia, like criminal law and, you know, civil procedure and all this horrible stuff. And, uh, I was reading those books and then trying to write these essays. And then someone just said, well, Hey, here is model essay questions and model answers. Just read through this book three times. That's what they said. I read through it once. (sighs) I read through it another time. And it was like a really short book. We're talking, you know, a hundred pages versus like 200 300 page books for each topic of law right and after that it was like 80 90 percent correct on all the essays i submitted before i took it and then i passed so i don't know what happened in terms of how well i did on the questions i did but i do remember as i was taking the essay portion seeing questions that i knew the answer right away because i had seen the exact same kind of question on the samples so it's just uh, (laughs) has nothing to do with law and it took me the sum total of a month and a half or two months i wonder if there's some way around that maybe you could pass the bar by taking that class and then not going to law school oh yeah for sure i i would think that if you just did bar prep you would be able to pass the bar oh i'm sure you would i just wonder if there's a legit way to do that and then become a lawyer Oh, uh, well, don't you, I think you have to like get sponsored. Yeah, It's like, cause there is that other non-law school route, right? Where you can mm-hmm. work in a law firm under the supervision of an attorney for 10 years or whatever and get sort oh, of like really? apprenticed oh. in kind of, but then you, to, to, to sit for the bar exam. So yeah, there is a route, but I think yeah. it's like 1% of all lawyers do that. I, okay. I, it's like not. Yeah. I didn't realize you had to wait so long. If, if you could just like get someone to sponsor you. And then prep for the bar. I think that would be awesome. Save you a ton of money. And <laughs> if it were easy, I'm th- I'm thinking a lot of people would do it because law school is just such a crazy waste of time and money. I mean, it really is. Uh, it's it, it's just kind of shocking, isn't it, that they don't actually prepare you for the bar exam? 
Well, and not only do they not prepare you for that, which I agree is shocking, they don't prepare prepare you for the practice of law in the sense (laughs) that, you know, people go to law firms and they're writing stuff like Iraq, you know, and partners are rolling their eyes and saying, what the heck is this? You know, this is useless. But they, they know it. They know what's coming out of these law schools. And I think law schools are trying to change, but it's still pretty crazy. It's basically just a big academic competition, right? It's like Mm -hmm. all it is is just sort of um, filtering, like sorting. It's a a competition to get in, and then it's a competition for grades while you're in school. And then it's just, it's almost like the NFL, um, you know, draft, like combines or something where, where you're just watching people do these stupid drills that, uh, you know, they're tangentially related to football. I mean, I guess some of it is actual football stuff, but they're not playing in football games. They're just like sprinting around and hitting dummies and jumping through tires and, you know, doing all this weird <laughs> shit. And and then everybody is like standing around just sort of with a notepad, like watching them. And, oh, yeah, OK, we want this. We want this one. You know, we want this guy. Yeah. But, yeah, you're you're just not doing lawyering while you're in law school. And then you pay all this money and you spend all this time and then you graduate and immediately have to take Barbary or Kaplan or some other like bar prep class or else you have no chance of passing the bar. I can't believe they don't just take the last semester of law school is such a waste of time. Why don't they take the last semester of law school and change it into bar prep for, it's, <laughs> for it's, God's it. sake. It'd be, <laughs> you'd at least be doing something worthwhile while you're there. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's beneath them, right? That's their, that's their problem. Or they want maybe like plausible deniability of, of like, oh, well, it's not our fault. You didn't pass the bar. Oh yeah. We taught you that. We taught you, we taught you civil procedure back in your first year. Why, why can't you apply it? <laughs> if they, but if they formally did like bar prep in the last semester, then yeah. they would, you know, then now they're like on the hook that you, that yeah. you need to pass the bar. Like people would expect that they're going to pass the bar now. Um, the one thing that the student says that I want to re-emphasize here is that bar passage rate is correlated with better schools. Higher, higher, uh, ra- higher ranked schools, better ranked schools do have higher bar passage rates, but that is not causal. It is um, it's a, an effect of the selection bias that happens up front when you get into better schools, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, it certainly could be, but it would be a small part of it. Maybe the fact that you're associating with people who are smart and that's motivating you to study, that could be causing you to study harder and thus helping your bar passage rates. But we, yeah, it's very unlikely. I mean, when they're not even prepping you for the bar, it seems pretty clear that the school is not really causing you to pass the bar. Yeah. It it is true, however, that if the best school you can get into has a 50% bar passage rate, you know, um, then I would give you about a 50% chance of uh, being able to pass the bar yep. if, you, if you go to that school. If you can get in, on the other hand, if the best school you can get into has a 90% bar passage rate and you choose to go to a school with a lower bar passage rate, that does not lower your chances of taking the bar at all mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. you are definitely talented enough to pass the bar. You just decided to go to a lower ranked school that has a lower bar passage rate because you want to go to a school that's going to give you a big scholarship and that that's not going to hurt your chances of passing the bar at all. All right. So then back to this email, can you uh, go to a non top 14 school and get a full time job in big law? And she says, here is where I differ with you and Ben somewhat. 
in what I think is realistic. I strongly believe that big law firms do care a lot about rankings and that a student's chance of getting a big law job dramatically decreases depending on uh, their school's, I guess, lower ranking. I'm basing my opinion on lots of anecdotal evidence from friends, but also on some resources that I found during law school. If a student wants to know if they can do big law if they go to ABC Law School, uh, here's what they can look at. Number one, career services. Career services websites. Do not use. Law schools, career services, or career development websites usually list their employment rates and OCI stuff, but I think they bend the truth to put it lightly. For example, Pepperdine lists my firm as a, quote, past recruiting program participant, but I know my firm doesn't do OCI there anymore and hasn't for at least five years. Hey, sorry, let's stop for one second. OCI? On-campus interviews, yes, right? Yes, correct. On-campus interview. Okay. Yep, yep, thanks. So I think it's fair to assume that they, uh, this is uh, Pepperdine, are inflating the list of firms that do OCI there to make it look like the prospects of getting a big law job are better than they are. I think the same is probably true for contacting the career services or admissions staff directly. What do you think? Any comments about that? Uh Agree. <laughs> I mean, 100%, obviously, right? Yeah. When you go to any of these like law fairs or whatever, or if you talk to any admissions office, I mean, you, you have to understand that you're talking to salespeople and they are absolutely going to, it's their job to paint their school in the very best light. So, yeah. <laughs> Past recruiting program participant. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but not in the last five years, sorry. <laughs> That's that, pretty good. Yeah, that's an awesome one. Okay, um, we have NL, uh, NALP, um, and we have a, a link here that we'll put on the in the show notes. I think most people call it NALP, NALP. right? Okay, that's fine. Mm -hmm. I don't even know what this is. NALP mm -hmm. has lots of helpful info. For any firm, search by name and city, click the Recruitment and Hiring tab. The hiring grid shows how many students they actually hire each year. That's the total from all schools. And the Campus Recruiting tab shows where they do OCI, on-campus interviewing. If a student is considering going to ABC Law School, but looks up major firms in the city near ABC Law School, and none of them do OCI at ABC Law School, it's probably very, very difficult or impossible to get a big law job from that school. Also, regarding the idea that some firms won't even give students from lower-ranked schools the time of day, yes, this is true. Firms recruit through OCI. If they don't do OCI at a school, they are very, very, very unlikely to hire anyone from that school. I asked the recruiting director at my firm if we do it, and she said she doesn't remember ever having done it in over 10 years, let alone even extending a first-round interview. Wow. NALP also has salary info and lateral hire numbers which we mentioned uh, last time as another way to get into big law. But honestly, I don't understand the table that shows laterals. I just wanted to mention that it's there. That's a, that's a bit surprising to me. What do you think? So you, you find it surprising that the firms don't look at students from schools that they don't OCI at? I mean, she's just saying that at her firm, they've never in 10 years hired anyone that they didn't get through OCI. Okay. So that's, yeah. that's clearly just like, yeah, I mean, they've just decided if you don't go to these schools, you're not getting a job here, period. Like, this is where we get our new lawyers from these schools. I don't know. I mean, I, I would assume that they're doing OCI at a lot of schools, but maybe that's not the case. And they just say, hey, look, we're going to do OCI down to this ranking and that's it. I mean, that kind of makes sense. I mean, it's not going to happen like that at every firm. So, but, you know, she's talking about her 
uh, top 30 law firm, mm-hmm. though. So mm-hmm. at, at this firm, that's how they're doing it. They're just not recruiting from anything other than OCI. So if if they're if they're doing OCI at your school, then you've got a chance. And if they're not doing OCI at your school, then you have no chance, at least at this firm. Yeah. Now, I don't remember what we said before. She said at the beginning she disagrees with us a little bit maybe on this point. And I don't remember what we said before, but I do think the issue comes down to what schools are they doing OCI at? And I wouldn't be surprised at all that they're not doing it at many schools, at the vast, vast majority of schools. I guess I'm just wondering... What schools do they go down to, you know? Well, she's, but NALP says, NALP has it though. Yeah. So you can just go if, you know, whatever school you're thinking about, you know, if there's a school in your backyard that has been um, appealing to you, you're thinking about going to, you know, she mentions Pepperdine here. If you're thinking about going to Pepperdine, but you're also thinking about going to work at some specific firm, you yeah. can find out on NALP whether they're doing OCI at, at that school. And if they're not, then they're not. And then yeah. you're probably not getting that job. The other thing that I should point out about OCI, which I was pretty shocked to see when I was at UC Hastings, was that uh, just because a firm comes and interviews on campus does not mean that you're going to get an interview. They uh, regularly were sending out emails to my class that said, uh, such and such big fancy law firm is coming to interview and if you are currently in the top 15% of the class rankings, then you are invited to uh, interview. Yeah. And, or top, sometimes top 25% or something like that. And then there were also like last minute, if someone canceled or something, sometimes there were other ways that you could get that interview. But I was pretty shocked to, to find that, you know, I, I mean, I just don't want students to be completely naive, like, Oh yeah, I mean, if oh well, they they this firm, you know, they do OCI at Hastings, so I'm a shoe in to get an interview, and I know that once I get an interview, then I'm going to get a job, so no problem. And then you know, you find out that you're not even qualified to get the interview based on your grades. That's a pretty bad like pulling the rug out from under. You know what I mean? Yeah, it it's actually. I mean, I think it's uh, the it reveals the cultural bias that the legal profession has toward numbers. Right. Like law schools are recruiting highly. Most, you know, their primary factor is your LSAT score and your GPA. And then it just continues. You're where are you ranked in your class at what school? So schools are ranked and then you are ranked within that school. And so law firms will go to lower ranked schools, but then they're going to limit the tier in which they look at. And then as you go up in schools, they're going to extend that tier down to more students within that class. Like right. It's all numbers, and it's again, it's about GPA at that point. And at some point, it's got to end, but the legal profession is obsessed with numbers, and maybe it's obsessed with numbers because it's filled with lawyers who don't really understand them. <laughs> I mean, I think there's a lot of evidence that says that, look, future success depends on a lot of other things beyond just aptitude performance on a test, you know, or GPA. I mean, you think about lawyers that uh, have high emotional intelligence and thus can do a lot to bring in money for the firm. Right. These rainmakers may not be necessarily the ones who are at the best law schools. I mean, they certainly could be. There's a correlation between going to a good law school and having everything in your life together and being good at all this stuff, but there's doesn't 
that's not always the case. And I think that's why you have some of these trial lawyers that go to like C law schools and are making millions because they know how to play the game and they know how to talk to juries and all these things are sort of ignored at these top law schools. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, just a random rant about life, <laughs> but I don't... <laughs> and how lawyers, how they love numbers. I mean, How they are, love numbers. Yeah, well, and that's never going to stop, right? It goes... It's I your, don't think it's going to stop, It's yeah. your undergrad GPA and it's your LSAT score and that's going to be converted into an index number, which is then going to determine what law schools you go to. The law schools have a ranking... They're going to interview a certain percentage of your class based on your grades. <laughs> Numbers continue. Then, you know, the firms are ranked. The lawyers within the firm are going to be judged on their billable hours. You know, how mm -hmm. many hours did you work? How many did you bill? How much money? How much business are you bringing in? I mean, it's just, it's always going to be numbers. It's never going to stop. Yeah. Okay. This email goes on ABA employment reports, and we have a link for that too. It says all schools submit these to ABA to show their employment numbers, and I think they have to be accurate and honest. If you want to know how easy it is to get a big law job from a school, here's the calculation. And she says, take the number, uh, add up the number of students at firms with over 100 employees, and then divide it by the total number of graduates, and then that'll tell you how high you have to rank approximately these are these are very rough numbers she wanted to point out that this is not like perfect math but she says for example ben brought up american university she gives a link to their aba employment report it says 55 students got a job at a firm with over 100 lawyers and then uh that's out of 464 students who graduated and so that's 12%, meaning that you basically had to be in the top 12% at American University in order to get a big law job, which is almost exactly what Ben predicted. <laughs> well, that, that's great to hear. I don't even remember what I said. So. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, I mean, but that seems like kind of reality, right? That if you go to American, yeah. some people there are going to get big law jobs, but not many. Yeah. Okay. Um, conversely, at George Washington... 149 students got big law jobs out of 465 graduates. So there it was like the top third of the class that were getting a big law job. Hmm. Yeah, this is really cool. This is a cool formula. Yeah, my friend went to Stanford and said that pretty much anyone who graduates from there can get a big law job if they want to. I wanted to check to see if the numbers matched what she said. Stanford's report is listed in percent, uh, not raw numbers, and it shows 53% got big law jobs which seemed low. However, 27% of the students got judicial clerkships, which are way more competitive than big law. So those students could totally have gotten big law if they wanted. And so then that's 73% of Stanford's graduating class working in big law or um, one of these, you know, prestigious clerkships, which uh, she says, I bet that's probably everyone who wanted to do so. Hmm. Which makes yeah. sense, right? I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of people who go to Stanford law and then just you know, <laughs> they don't need to work for whatever reason, or they, they decide to, you know, work at some startup or something. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Summary of ABA reports. I don't think it's realistic or helpful to try to run this calculation for every school you're interested in, but I do think it can be useful if you aren't sure if you can get a big law job from a certain school. And I especially think it could be helpful considering the advice that applicants hear so often, go to the best school you can get into. If the best school you can get into is American University, you'd still have to be in the top 12%, roughly, to get a big law job, and the odds of doing that at a school that is the best school you got into are low. 
Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if you have a full ride to American University, you're probably already in a good place to do well there. And if you bust your ass, you could definitely be in the top 12% and get a big law job. We've talked about that a lot, right? The difference between mm-hmm. being the big fish in the small pond and like barely squeaking in at a certain school. Yeah. So that's, that is, a, I think American is a, it's like kind of a perfectly ranked school to be thinking about this kind of calculation mm-hmm. where, you know, if, if you had, if you had a full ride to some lower rank school or you decide to squeak into American, now you're like facing this pretty uphill battle to get the big law job, right? I mean, it might be your only route to getting the big law job. Yeah, because the lower rank school may be The lower rank school is going to be 0%. But then again, <laughs> at the lower rank school, you might not be paying at all for law school, right? You might be yeah, going there yeah. for free, which changes your, you know, there's, there's other ways to be a successful lawyer besides being a big law lawyer, you know, right out of law school kind of thing. Yep, yeah. But then again, on the other hand, if it's like, oh, I have to decide between American and George Washington, you know, George Washington, 32% are getting a big law job. American, 12% are getting a big law job. But if Mm -hmm. you go to American on a full ride, you're probably a good bet to do well, you know, not like not being 10 top 12% as ever a guarantee. But yeah, if you're there on a full ride, it means something. You know, mm-hmm. you're, you're probably better qualified than most of the other people that you're there with. And, and so she says, if you bust your ass, you know, you got a chance to be top 12%. And now you can still get that big law job potentially uh, without mm-hmm. paying for law school. So I, I don't know. I've, I just think that's really interesting. What is American ranked? It's like in the, I feel like it's in the 50s. Okay. Or something. Right. So, yeah. yeah. But, and that's like. So that sounds like that's about the edge where firms are just not interviewing below, much below that. Um, and mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. again, even even at those schools, they're only going to be interested in a sliver of the class. Yeah. I just think people make a lot of bad decisions around that point of the rankings curve. I think people, you know, oh, well, I'm not going to go to USF. I'm going to go to Hastings because, I, I, you know, Hastings has all this fancy on-campus interviewing. But if you're barely getting into Hastings, I mean, it's just sure you could do it. But, you know, there's a lot of other people at Hastings that are also barely squeaking into Hastings that are trying to get that same big law job. And only one of you is going to get it. Yeah. Um, So just I don't know. I, I, you know, turning down some school to go to Stanford is a whole just a totally different deal. It's it's a it's a completely (laughs) the analysis changes um, when you get higher up in the rankings, I think. All right. Yeah. Uh, Okay. Can you pay off your loans? Yes. But just to have a realistic look at one student's details, here are mine. I had pretty much a full ride, but I still had to take out $20,000 per year to be able to live. So my starting loan amount, this is after graduating with pretty much a full ride, was $65,000. I have several different loans, and the rates range from 5.4% to 7.2%. My monthly payment should be about $700. That's the payment plan where the payments start low and then balloon. So that's what she's paying now, um, but it's going to go up a lot from there. With the fixed payment plan, it's $1,100 a month for 10 years or $700 a month for 25 years. (laughs) God. (laughs) It's so Sorry. it's so ridiculous. It's outrageous how much this Sell shit your costs. Soul. Well, and that's oh with a full gosh. ride. That's with a full ride. Yeah. She's getting with yeah. a full ride. She's getting out owing 
$1,100 a month for 10 years if she pays it off fast. Jesus. So this is where I disagree with her a little bit. It kind of depends on, I guess, how much money you end up making. I, I, I got out the uh, curve because I was curious what that bimodal curve was suggesting. I, I think her point is actually made even more so if you fall in the bottom half. But if you fall in the top half, I don't know that this really matters. No, that's true. Um, I think she's going to, uh, you know, she did it, right? She uh, excelled at her top 20 law school and was able mm -hmm. to get a big job right out of school. So, I mean, it's not like she gets, she is going to still be making those payments though, you know, and that's, it's going to, it's not going to, it's not like she's going to be able to pay it off instantly. But, um, I mean, and thank God she got the full ride because if yeah. she didn't get the full ride, I mean, that's, this is without tuition at all. If, if, yeah. if you'd, you'd be talking about closer to 200,000 if tuition was, if she was borrowing money for tuition. And now yeah. you're looking at payments that are, you know, more like $3,000 a month. Uh, <laughs> it just gets insane. So check this out. I, I searched on NALP. Um, if you search, if you Google NALP and then salary distribution curves, okay. it should be the first thing that comes up. I don't know why the, the latest information that they have is the class of 2014, but maybe that's all the data that they have. But this is, I mean, this is shocking. So you have... Just so anyone who is unfamiliar with this, basically you have a salary bell curve, if you can imagine this, and the lowest salary, this is of someone, this is the starting salary for someone who's graduated from law school, and you have the lowest salary is $5,000 a year, which is totally <laughs> unsustainable. <laughs> uh, you're living with your parents, obviously, um, or the highest salary is 205000 starting, and it looks like there's no one on that end of the bell curve. But anyways, most starting salary bell curves for most professions are a traditional bell curve in which most people are somewhere in the middle and then you have a few people who make very little and you have a few people who make a lot, right? But for law school, you have a huge bell curve uh, over about, it looks like, from around, oh geez, this is low. It goes from thirty thousand about to about seventy thousand. So from thirty thousand to seventy thousand, you have a pretty big bell curve. There's a lot of people in that range, yep. and then you have pretty much one percent to two percent hovering along from seventy-five thousand up to a hundred and. 50,000. So a dip, in other words. You're talking about, we're talking about the bimodal distribution of starting salaries for lawyers. And what Ben is describing is basically like, imagine two bell curves next to each other, right? With a, yes. with a big chasm in between <laughs> in the middle. Yes. And that's between 70 and what did you say? Uh, 70 to 150. There's pretty much, if you look at the percentage of people who are making salaries between 75,000 a year and 150,000 a year it's like 1 to 2% for each of those yeah. like all the way along there so it's very very low and uh, so you have these two bell curves and then you have this ginormous spike so it goes from literally no one earning anything up to that point and then you have the number is 16% so 16% of law graduates are making around $160,000. So 16% create this 
second bell curve, and pretty much the rest create this first bell curve, right. which hovers from thirty thousand, no, thirty-five thousand to about seventy thousand. Right. Yeah, that's insane. So if you're going to law school, plan on the first bell curve, which is basically not much better than a regular job. If you get into this other bell curve, though, because you really only have two options, because there's no one in between. You're now making one hundred sixty thousand, and I don't think this this thousand dollars a month or three thousand dollars a month is is as big of a right. deal. I think three thousand a month at one hundred sixty thousand, depending on where you live, can be a little tight because you know some places are pretty expensive, like New York and D.C. But uh, you, that's your starting salary. So as long as you uh, work every day of your life <laughs> and sell your children, you will have time. <laughs> To hit your billable hours, get bonuses, and eventually, you know, you're making 200, and all of a sudden, these payments are going to go away. In fact, you're going to come to a point where you say to yourself, "Let me just pay this off and pay it." But the super scary thing, and the the thing that listeners just have to watch out for, is schools or just even the internet just telling you what the average salary is for lawyers, right? Because I think what you're saying is that the, the average salary, the mean or the median, probably not the median, the mean is going to be. Wait, what is the median? Huh? <laughs> Great. Wait, what is the median? The again? median is the middle it. number. And the middle number, I'm I'm sure, is going to be in the first bell curve, the lower bell curve. Oh, yeah. The median is the the how uh, the number in which the most people have that no, number, that's right? The mode. That's the I'm mode? I have to take you to school okay. here for a minute, Ben. The, That's okay. Go right the ahead. Mode, the mean is the average. The mean is the mathematical average. Like add up all That's the money that everybody makes and divide by the number of people. That gives you the mean. And I'm pretty sure that the mean here is going to be like. No Googling this. You know, you're Googling this right no, now. No, I'm not. And then, mm-hmm. No. Yeah. Okay. No, I'm, a, I'm, I'm good at math, um, which is why I did not decide to be a lawyer. Now I'm pretty good at math too. I just don't know the, I just don't know the terms. Right. Tell me what you want to find. I'll find well, it. The, the median is going to be if you rank everybody from lowest to highest, yep. then the person who's exactly in the middle of that line, how much money are they making? That's the median. Okay. And I think there's the, the it's got to be skewed toward the lower curve, right? I mean, most people oh, are sure. in that yeah. first curve that goes between 30 and 70. So the median yeah, for lawyers yeah. is going to yeah, be Yeah, I knew like, that all along. I knew that all along. You don't <laughs> the median is going to be like $60,000 <laughs> or something the, or, yeah. or less. The mean... Is the mean is where you get screwed, and that's what people quote when they quote average. When people say average, they almost always mean the mean. And the mean salary for for lawyers, because of all these people who are making a hundred, you know, the few who are making one hundred and sixty thousand dollars a year or one hundred and eighty thousand dollars a year, that's going to bump up the mathematical simple average, and the average salary for lawyers, even at you know, at whatever school you're looking at, they're going to quote you like, oh, well, yeah, the average starting salary for people who graduated from our school is $95,000. Yeah. But the truth is no one makes $95,000. It's one dude who makes 180 and then a whole bunch of people who make 60 or 50. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's the scare. Oh, well, just, I don't know. Like I, I yell about this all the time. I, I'm not sure it like really registers with people. <laughs> Because they still just yeah. come back to like, oh, but the average salary is ninety five. Yeah, it's ironic too. Because if you if you Google uh, NALP and then salary distribution curves, the curves that come up, they have these two curves, and then for whatever reason, 
they've decided to give us the mean. So you have the mean and the adjusted mean. I don't know what the adjusted mean is, but the mean is 82,000 and the adjusted mean is 77,000, which of course is in the middle of these two curves. So right. it's fucking data useless. that applies to no Exactly. <laughs> it's useless. It's useless. So, you know, don't look at that average number. The mean number is totally useless. You got to look at where people are actually going and how much they're actually making. And no one is going to be the average person. <laughs> um, you know, you can look at the local, I guess, mean of the two separate curves. Yeah, that would be helpful. That, that would be helpful. But I mean, we could also just tell you what they are. It's at like roughly 55 or 60,000 and it's roughly like 170,000. Yep. And that's, you know, if you get the big law, fancy big law job, you get the 170,000. And if you don't, you're going to be just like everybody else, you know, grinding it out for $60,000 a year. Well, a lot of these people are most likely not in legal professions, right? Um, sure. Yeah. I mean, a lot, right. You're just getting some normal person job, but there also are a lot of lawyers who make that amount of money, right? I mean, if you go to a small firm or you go to a a public service job or whatever, I mean, that's just how much money you're making. Mm -hmm. When you're you're a baby, like assistant district attorney or something, I mean, I don't think you're making 60,000, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Okay. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Moving on. Other random thoughts. Do some firms hire only from Harvard, Stanford, Yale? Yes, or at least close to yes. My friend, she says, is going to work for Munger Tolls, and we did not go. So this is a, they went to a top 20 school outside the top 14. Um, my friend is going to work for Munger Tolls, but he's graduating with the highest GPA in the school, which he also had at the end of every academic year. He's extremely well-spoken and presentable. And he says everyone else in his class at Munger Tolls is from Harvard, Stanford, and Yale. Hmm. And they all, they almost all also have federal appellate clerkships lined up. And she also gives a list of the firms that are crazy competitive like this. And so we will uh, also post that into the show notes if you want to get all of this backup data. Sure. Another way to do this is to Google Vault. And most selective firms, and it'll come up probably. Oh, okay, cool, great. Um, can you use whether or not you got a scholarship as a metric for whether or not you'll be competitive at the school? I mean, I do that all the time. She says, I don't know, maybe if it's a full ride. But otherwise, I know a lot of people who got fat scholarships at my school, at least 50%, and they did only okay at school, A's and B's, which wasn't good enough to get them a big law job. I think that's maybe an artifact of just the the fact that everyone gets scholarships now, mm-hmm. you know, like where they're giving scholarships to th- partial scholarships to three quarters of the class or 80% of the class in some cases. Do we have the numbers on that? No, but I've, I've had, I've, I've definitely seen schools that have, that quoted at, that quoted 75% to me. So I know it, that's, I know it happens. Insane. Well, it's just, everyone's paying a different price. That's all, that's all there is to it. You know, yeah, yeah, of course. They, it's actually the best way to get to maximize your utility. Exactly. Perfect price discrimination. Charge every customer yep. a different price. And they're doing that exactly by, the price that they're willing to pay. Exactly. So they're putting a arbitrarily almost high, you know, <laughs> the rack rate full tuition is some mm-hmm. crazy, just insane, you know, 
totally, really unreasonable, $53,000 a year or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then giving 75% of the class, you know, somewhere between 10 and a hundred percent scholarships. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and then, and you know, like, so she says, she even calls it here. She says fat scholarships, right? At least, and she says at least 50%. But mm-hmm. if they have this crazily high tuition of $50,000 a year, and then they give you a 50% scholarship, you're still paying them $25,000 a year, mm-hmm. which already is outrageously high for what you get in law school. It's insane that they could chart. All you're doing, you're sitting in a room. <laughs> you're the, there's 100 people there, and there's a professor. Yeah, have we talked about how law schools are like the cash cows for schools before? Uh, no, I don't know. Uh, basically, I mean, I don't know where I read this or was reading about this, but from the school's perspective, law schools are... I mean, a lot of them are losing money right now, the ones that shouldn't exist. But the ones that do exist, you have huge classes... You have one professor who does not have any lab equipment. Like if you compare this to a chemistry program or yeah. anything like that, where there's all these other costs associated with trying to get that student on board with your discipline. All they do is they talk to you for an hour every week or two. About their, and about then, their special research, their special area of interest. You know, They're like basically yep. Asperger's about their, about their special area of law. And now they're supposed to be teaching you torts, but all they're going to really, they're going to just go off about the shit that, you know, this (laughs) crazy little area of law of torts law that they're super, super interested in. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, it's okay. I mean, and then there's, there's one test, maybe, maybe a midterm, but usually not. And then one test at the end and they sit down and grade it. I mean, these schools are making a killing off of doing almost nothing (laughs) totally i mean they spend money on like recruiting right yeah they they spend money on their like sales yeah because they have to travel around the country and go to all these events you know and they got to put the admission staff up in some hotel somewhere and they're paying for their meals and whatnot and they're you know glossy brochures and uh advertisements all you know you see ads all around town billboards and stuff that they put up and i mean that's what really the tuition money is going for because you're right it you know okay facilities but once you have a facility a classroom with 100 seats in it you know and you run four different classes that day and all it is is yeah professor comes in and talks for an hour kids come in and basically shop online for an hour (laughs) I, I saw I saw the most ridiculous shit when I was in law school. People like for sure shopping. That there was a lot of shopping. There was a lot of G chatting. And then there was the dude who was sitting there one day when we were one else just literally watching UFC fights on his on his <laughs> computer. <laughs> While the professor's oh, like droning on and on. I think their biggest expense is pro well is probably the professor's salary, right. right? So they have to get these high, you know, these professors who could be making money elsewhere um, uh, in the legal profession, so they have to pay them a lot. And it's I think what's, what's happening is that the lower-ranked schools who tried to become Harvards and are paying top dollar for professors who graduated from, not Harvard necessarily, but a top 10 school, you know, all if you look at the professors as a profession, they're all from, like, the top 10, top 15, 
And so they're paying top dollar for those professors, and now they can't pay them. I think that's their biggest problem. Yeah. This email continues. It might be easier to get a big law job at a pass-no-pass school. If your school is pass-no-pass and you perform 0.1% better than failing, you get a pass. But if you perform 0.1% worse than amazing, you also get a pass. So you might as well do crappy in classes you don't like, really focus on ones you think you can get the highest grade in the class in, and have a decent chance of getting into big law with a transcript full of P's and a few H's and HH's. This is what... So the H's are honors and high honors or something? mm -hmm. And that's when you do really, really, really well in a pass-fail class and end up getting honors? Yeah, and she says that's what her friend did at Berkeley. So went to Berkeley, they don't have A, B, C, D, F, they have pass no pass and then if you kill it you get an h or an hh yeah that's a really interesting strategy you're basically allocating resources right so you can just cruise the most effective possible yeah cruise through the classes you don't like and then if you see like oh here's one where i could you know kiss ass study my ass off write a really great exam and maybe get an h or an hh and all you got to do is like get a few of those Right. Yeah. And and then all the rest passes and then you can maybe get a big law job that way. So that, that's interesting. Oh, she says one L versus two L big law summer. If you really kill it first semester one L, you can avoid on campus interviewing if your school is able to get big law firms that recruit for one L's. Or if you apply to a special program like this program, she links from uh, Morrison Forster. How does that work? Oh, because uh, if you, I think most 1Ls don't get jobs at big law firms, right? They do something else. Oh, for but that first summer. But if you can get summer. one uh-huh. for that first summer, then they, and they like you. I love um, Above the Law, all the stupid 1Ls out there who got big law jobs and then for their summer and then royally screwed it up by pissing off some partner. <laughs> but That's awesome. It's pretty much, once you get that, I think what she's saying, I think this is true. Once you get that, as long as you're not an idiot and you, you know, give people some respectable work, they know you. So you're much more likely to get a second summer position there and then likely to get recruited on the, through that process. Yeah, you didn't even have to go through the, the interviewing process. I see, I see. But you wouldn't, you'd still have to interview for that first summer job? I, th- I think so. I mean, maybe it's not through... OCI other than the the big OCI stress fest that happens yeah okay anyway what do you think about all of that anything anything else we need to talk about that was very helpful by the way thank you uh so much to my anonymous student who shared all that uh no but I uh I I think yes I don't know why I said no I agree I like it it's great uh I would only add that I think she's absolutely right if you really kill it that first semester if you feel like you can get your stuff together and do well then i think it's it can pay off big time over the long run and so i would suggest people try to do some research before they start their first semester so they they know what they're getting into um and that will give you a leg up over a lot of other people yeah yeah okay awesome this next email i i really like it you want to read it ben i feel like it's been a lot of me reading no problem i'll read it says, hi, Nathan and Ben. Thank you, all caps, for your podcast. 
I took a blueprint class in 2012 and benefited greatly from it. I took time off and now need to retake the test because it will have expired by the time I plan to apply to law school. Uh, oh, wow. Okay. So almost five years. Yeah. Uh, since discovering your podcast, I've realized that there were a few techniques Blueprint teaches that I now think were preventing me from scoring even higher than the 167 I scored in October 2012. Yeah, still a great score. First, I've stopped, all caps, <laughs> reading the stem first. So she stopped reading the question first. That means she's reading the passage and then the question. Now I just focus on fully understanding the stimulus the passage and i've found that whatever the stem happens to be i i already i know exactly how to attack it answer the question because i so fully understand the stimulus yeah uh this uh i'm not as passionate about this issue as you are i think that there are some people who could benefit from reading the question first but i this is the way i do it and i agree that if you can fully understand what's going on things just fall into place yeah, I mean, keep keep going. I think the way she's describing it is exactly how I feel about it. I mean, I think this is exactly... Just, yeah, keep keep going, I guess. Sure. Reading the stem first, I found, I found I was focusing way too much on finding the answer as I was reading the stimulus. Not good. I was missing important pieces because I was so distracted by the stem. I've now done multiple flawless LR sections, and I am so happy. Yeah, I mean, I've been saying that for a long time. I, hey, if it works for you to read the stem first, awesome. But I don't think it's a good idea. I mean, I think it's going to distract you. And so this is a, a very high scorer. She obviously has a really good handle on the test. But now she's saying that getting rid of this little strategy is what has led her to perfect, perfect uh, logical reasoning sections. Um, because now she's just doing it, the test on an entirely different, higher plane. You know, she's, she's just killing the argument. And uh, if you can kill the argument, you really understand that argument, then it doesn't matter what type of question they ask you. Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder if this has something to do with um, where you're scoring, too. Because, I mean, I this is what I do. This is what you do. I've talked to people who feel like it's easier to read the question stem first. And I wonder if the more familiar you get with the test the easier it is to do it this way because it allows you to just really focus on what's going on. Whereas if you're having trouble even orienting yourself, reading the question first does help you. Like It could be. That's a like a technique for someone who's trying to get to 150, struggling to get to 150. Maybe reading yeah, the question I don't know. stem first makes more sense. I don't know. I think it sucks for everybody. <laughs> Cool. Well, I, I'd be interested to do some more research on that, of course. Anyway, she says, second, thank you for your reading comp advice. I used to underline and circle so much that the passage looked like an artwork after looked like artwork after I finished with it. Now I just read it. I read to understand and I don't worry about circling and underlining. I read, understand, and take a few minutes to digest it before moving to the questions. It's that easy. Wow. Again. The tactics they had for us use were just distracting me from actually comprehending because my mind was so concerned with employing the techniques that I forgot to just read, all caps. Ultimately, I forgot to just think, all caps. I was. <laughs> you hate those caps. Wow. <laughs> no, I'm not saying I hate them. <laughs> okay. 
I'm just emphasizing to our listeners <laughs> what words were capitalized so they can understand them. I'm so sorry if that was the interpretation by pointing no, out that it, they're all caps. All right. No, I that, no, I don't hate okay. them. They're actually well placed. What I do hate is caps that go on for multiple words. Oh, okay. But she's just doing it one one word at a time. Yeah, yeah. and I'm I was just trying to convey that to our <laughs> our dear our dear listeners. Okay. <laughs> I was so caught up in the tactics and theory of it all that it seemed like a difficult game. Nathan, you once said that it's not that hard. <laughs> For some reason, that really stuck with me. Of course, it's a learnable test, and there are invaluable techniques and advice that are necessary to employ if you want to do well. But it's been so valuable for me to remember not to overthink. You guys do an amazing job of balancing LSAT theory with common sense. Thank you so much. So yeah, this is Michelle. So thank you very much, Michelle. Um, this email is, I mean, a lot of that is exactly, it's almost like I wrote it, you know, the whole thing about reading comprehension, people getting stuck on these stupid techniques and like not mm -hmm. actually comprehending the passage. Yeah. And, and so what she's saying here, and I've, I've had this experience with a million students, especially, I guess the higher performing students where when they learn to just let go of all the stupid gimmicks and, and just actually understand it, mm -hmm. you know? So anyway, thank you uh, very much for this email. I do believe that the test is just not that hard. I've been saying that a lot in class lately. You know, if it doesn't feel easy, it's probably because you're approaching it the wrong way, especially if you think about like the first 10 on the logical reasoning. Mm -hmm. I mean, those had better be easy. If those are not easy, you're doing it wrong or you're barking up the wrong tree, right? I mean, they should feel easy. Yeah. If not, you got to figure out how to make them easy because if you don't get to a point where they're easy, you're just never going to really be successful on the test. Yeah. Um, it, it is not that hard if you just understand it. And um, the gimmicks and stuff, they just, you know, they're, they're not about understanding. They're about little little gimmicky strategies and I don't, or tactics. I don't know. I, I prefer the over overarching tactic strategy of just, Hey, you, you got to understand this stuff. You have to be able to read it and understand it. Sorry. Um, next one. Yeah. So this says, uh, Oh, Kirk from Kentucky, Nathan and Ben, I can't seem to get more than 15 answers correct on timed logic game sections. This is my weakest section. I've been getting 18 to 20 correct on LR and RC. I usually get the first two games completely correct and then only have time for a few questions in the third game. I understand from listening to the podcast that I should be in good shape to improve on the games since my accuracy is high. However, I'm registered for the September test and it is only two weeks away. Oh. Yeah. Hope we get to him Three soon. Days away. <laughs> and this will definitely come out after the September LSAT. So hope you did yeah. well, Kirk. Hope you did well. Um, okay. So you have any comments on that so far? Uh, no, I, well, I mean, I think he's got the right idea. If he's scoring 18 to 20 on logical reasoning and reading comprehension, usually people like that can, you know, get up to close to 18 to 20, if not sometimes perfect on the logic games. It's the most learnable section of the test. Um, because he's getting the first two games completely correct or he, because he has high accuracy 
I would be looking mm -hmm. for 100% accuracy on the questions that he does attempt. That means he's getting mm -hmm. it. You know, he's essentially figuring it out. And yeah. I think if he just keeps doing what he's doing, um, you know, it's almost inevitable that he'll continue getting better and better at the games. Not like it's going to happen overnight. And, you know, <laughs> we can never tell people that, oh, in, in a week, you know, you're going to get there for sure. Um, mm -hmm. But it is it is close to, if not actually inevitable, if you just keep drilling, you're going to get better at the games. Yeah. So one thing he says here is after studying for about a month and taking four full practice tests, uh, any thoughts about that? Um, yeah, that's not a lot of tests. Uh, I mean, yeah. that's not when, when you consider that many of your competitors are going to do 40 practice tests. I usually think that you've got to do 10 more like 15 or 20 to really reach your potential. Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds like he's doing well. He He's just not, hasn't done enough yet. You know, he's just on his, on yeah. his way, which is great. Yeah. He says, my high score is 160 after starting with a 152. So nice work. My goal is to score firmly in the 160s. I'm finding it hard to move faster, any faster on the games. Should I focus my energies on nailing LR and RC and just plan on getting the, at most two games done in the test? <laughs> Should I be drilling games, both? How can I best focus my energies with the limited amount of time that I have left? I mean, frankly, he needs more time, right? right. He needs to take it in December. Right. He, so, yeah, he needs more time. He's not ready yet. His practice test scores are not where they want, where he wants them to be. Um, you know, I would say you don't have to withdraw until the last minute, right? You can withdraw on Friday um, mm -hmm. before the test. So if this was... You know, if he had actually had uh, two weeks, I, I would say, you know, keep drilling. I would actually do the exact opposite of what his idea here is. <laughs> I would do only games almost, right? Games is his weakest section. I think games is the place where people pick up, like they make the biggest leaps at the, if they're going to make a leap at the last minute, it's like games is where it's going to come from for this guy. So I would probably be, if you know, maybe I'm not saying completely ignore logical reasoning and reading comprehension, but I would do more games than I would anything else. And I would, you know, hope, hope that it clicks because it can, I mean, it did for me when I was prepping, it clicked for me like in the last week and, you know, yeah. leaving it to the last minute, like that's not awesome, but I don't know, that's the reality of the situation. And, um, if it clicks, you know, so it, it wouldn't surprise me. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be shocking, right? He has scored a one sixty before, so if he did a lot of games and it finally clicked and he started getting three or four games, then all of a sudden now he's at his 165 and then I would say, go ahead and take it. Yeah. But, you know, that's not going to happen for everybody and odds are he's taking it in December. One thing he's, uh, I mean, I don't know if he's asking this directly, but uh, he's saying he's not going as fast. He's, he, he's finding it hard to move any faster in the games. And although he is doing well on the games that he is doing, I would be very curious how he's getting those questions right. So, for example, if he finds himself testing out answer right. choices frequently, then that's going to get you the right answer. But it's probably not the most effective way in most of the instances that he's doing that. I mean, I find myself doing that maybe on one or two questions per test. Right. And in a lot of other cases, I mean, maybe it's, it's probably actually more than that. But it, in a lot of cases, I am predicting the answer uh predicting two answers 
and they only give you one of them, you know? And so (laughs) before even looking at the answers and you're like, wow, I know I'm onto this test because I just predicted F and L and they gave me all these letters and they only gave me F. So (laughs) it's, I know what's going on because they didn't give me L. And, and so, uh, how much is he doing there? Sometimes too, with like must be true questions, if you make several inferences initially, uh, if this is an if question and you make several inferences up front and it's a must be true question, oftentimes I'll predict that the answer is the very last inference that I made and just scan for that. So I'm not even reading some answers. I'm just looking for S and it's like, oh, there it is. And then that's saving time too. So I would look at how many answer choices you're testing. And if you're testing a lot of answer choices, try to make more inferences before you go into the game and before you go into the individual yeah, well, if question. So, right, exactly. It's it's the fact that you're trying to go fast that's slowing you down because you're getting into the questions too quickly. Meanwhile, uh, I would be, you know, making, oh, well, there's really these just two scenarios. Let's see. Um, if I pencil it out this way, then this happens. And if I pencil it out this way, then this other thing happens. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm just patiently figuring out the entire system while you're grinding away testing answer choices on the first couple of questions. But mm-hmm. by the time mm-hmm. I get done analyzing the game, I mean, not in every case, but many, many cases, right? It's just like, mm-hmm. it's already just game over. Or mm-hmm. same thing on an if question. There'll be an if question where they give me a clue. And what students want to do is they want to take that clue and then immediately start testing answer choices. And mm-hmm. instead, what you would do, Ben, is you would take that clue, you would follow that clue all the way to its logical, uh, you know, end, mm-hmm. as far as you can with it. Then mm-hmm. you would say, "Oh, which one of the following must be true?" Well, I bet it's this. <laughs> like you already, and and then you just again, like you're you're describing, scan the answer choices, and sure enough, there it is. Yeah, because you you took the the information that was provided, and you just figured out the system, and you take all the time you need to do that. Because then mm-hmm. by the time you start looking at the answer choices, you're going to fly through the answer choices. Yeah. Cool. So he goes on, I've been working through the Logic Games playbook, which is your book, Nathan, yep. and the Logic Games Bible, which is by PowerScore. These complement each other well, and I've helped and have helped a lot with accuracy. I also just got Nathan's LR encyclopedia in the mail, and I have started working on it. Cool. Uh, if I can't get my practice scores firmly in the 160s by the 24th, then I am prepared to withdraw and try it in December. Oh, so he's uh, considering what we suggested earlier. Great. Thanks for helping me realize there's no need to rush into law school applications without first getting the LSAT score that reflects my ability. Couldn't agree more. Uh, then a last paragraph about how he's going to contribute to Nathan's Beer Fund and my audiobooks or something <laughs> or something so maybe i could you know get a candy bar or something <laughs> perfect that's kirk from kentucky thanks a lot kirk and uh hope you made it uh you won't hear this until after the september lsat but i hope you uh if your practice test scores got there in time then i hope you took the test on saturday the 24th and kicked ass and if uh, your practice test scores didn't get there in time, I hope you withdrew, didn't waste one of your three attempts, and uh, will be taking it again in December. There's absolutely no shame and no problem when that happens. People just 
need to be realistic. And, you know, if you're not there, you're not there. And law school will always be there waiting for you, trying to charge you $150,000. So really, what's the rush? There you go. Couldn't agree more. So this next one is from Travis. Uh, He says that he's studying for the December LSAT. So it's two months from now. And he just finished all of the Logic Bible study books. And they were helpful, blah, 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 blah. And he's now found the podcast, and he's on episode 20. Cool. So he'll hear this, like, in 2017 sometime. <laughs> yeah. So I told him that we'd actually respond to this in 70, so he said he'd skip ahead. Oh, but okay. anyways, he has some questions about attacking questions in RC. He says he finds himself taking too long to get through the wordy answer choices and that he was wondering if we had any tips as to how he could evaluate each of the five answer choices faster. Can I give just one quick tip? Yeah, go ahead. Well, one word will make an answer choice wrong. I think that's one way that... I I think people spend too much time evaluating an answer choice that is already extremely likely to be wrong. Mm -hmm. So... Um, maybe that's one way to get through. Cause I notice, I mean, I do that a lot on the logical reasoning and the reading comprehension. I can dismiss answer choices halfway through frequently because I understand what they're saying and they're just not saying what needs to be said. Right. I mean, especially like yeah. reading comprehension questions are all must be trues or almost mm-hmm. all must be trues. And yeah. on a must be true, it's, it's, you know, once an answer says something that was not stated in the passage or once it says something different from what was stated in the passage, it doesn't matter what the rest of the answer choice says. It's already wrong, right? Like 5% wrong Mm -hmm. is 100% wrong. So Mm -hmm. I think you do the same thing. You just don't really need to... It's not like I need to be able to perfectly tell you exactly why each of the wrong answers are wrong. I can just start to sense that they're wrong or you know i i see something that they did like oh well you know it can't be that and now i don't need to take time to think about that answer anymore i'm moving on because mm-hmm. because four of them are going to be wrong i i think it might have something to do with the difference between I, i'm simultaneously looking for the correct answer and just trying to eliminate the four wrongest ones and I think the second half of that is what maybe students don't quite do enough of, right? They're not looking for reasons to eliminate answer choices, and they should be. I mean, there's yeah. a lot more reasons to p- to eliminate answer choices than there are reasons to pick answer choices. We have to get rid of four of the answers. So if mm-hmm. you go in with the kind of like aggressive process of elimination kind of mindset, like, hey, this is probably wrong. Let me read it. Oh, yeah. Nope. Gone. See ya. Mm-hmm. then I think maybe that helps to go faster. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I have a I have another thought I want to add to that, but before, let's read this next paragraph. Okay. He says, now I don't have any issue reading through the passage. It takes me about two minutes to read through, mm-hmm. but the answer choices seem to be so wordy that it's taking me forever to get through the, quote, bullshit, as you guys have called it, and refocus back on the true purpose of the passage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you had the same reaction that I had. Yeah. What was your reaction? Well, is two minutes enough? Yeah, that's my question. Because uh, a lot of times, answer choices are tempting because you didn't catch 
exactly what the passage was saying or the nuances or it's not even nuances. A lot of times it's like, no, this passage is clearly supporting this methodology and we're talking about it in class and people are like, well, this author is talking about this methodology and it's like, yeah, and she's in favor of it too. Did you catch that? And it's like, um, no. It's like, that's the point of the passage. So sometimes these answers, it's like you start reading them and it's like the author is ambivalent and you're like, nope, no, nope, 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 that's wrong. And I think he might think they're wordy because yeah. he's not able to do what you're saying, and that is to s- eliminate answers as soon as they give a wrong right. word or wrong idea because in his mind it could work maybe. Yeah. I mean, it's on topic. I hate I, – right. It's got some of the right words. It's got Boy, it's got all these words in it. Oh, these words, <laughs> they were in the passage. You know, I mean, I'm not beating up on, um, on uh, Travis particularly, yeah. but – Generally, I hear students say, I just got so caught up in the wording. Do you hear people say that? I got caught up. I just got caught up in the wording. And Mm -hmm. it's like, yeah, you know, another way of saying that is you didn't understand what you read. Mm -hmm. I I got caught. I just got caught up in the wording. I know. Yeah, it's it's dense. It's hard. Like you have to slow down. You have to understand what it says. I got caught up in the wording means I don't understand. Okay, good. Well, fine. You don't understand. That's fine. That's okay. That happens. But the reason why you don't understand is because you're trying to go too fast and and you're just going to have to slow down and actually get it. Yeah. And that, and we've said this before. I mean, sometimes you have to reread sentences. Sometimes for some of these long sentences, that's rereading particular clauses until that clause clicks and you're like, oh, okay, they're saying don't rely on these studies in a really, really weird way. And now that you're saying that, let me read the rest of the sentence, and now the sentence makes sense. Yeah. And and once it makes sense, you realize it's just not that hard. It, it's not, yeah. it, it shouldn't, and, and that's what I go back to my thing of like, hey, hey it should feel easy. If it's not feeling mm-hmm. easy, then maybe you need to reread it because you yeah. need to be the guy who understands it. And if mm-hmm. it takes a couple readings to get that, that to make it really click, then that's awesome. But if you just, oh no, I got to hurry up and get to the questions. Well, then that's why all the answer choices seem good. Yeah. You know, I, boy, these, it's just all these words. It's like, yeah. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> There's also a main point of the passage and it's not that hard. You just got to get it. And then once you start yeah. looking at these questions, you'll realize, well, no, that's not what the author was talking about. Yeah. No, I agree. So in the next sentence, he sa- or the paragraph, he says, also in regards to the local questions, which he's referring to as the questions that refer you to a specific line in the passage, I noticed that it's taking me a while to find the information needed in the passage to answer the question. I was wondering if you have a notation technique you use for line-specific questions. Uh, no. The study book is very is pretty heavy on notating everything, and I don't necessarily like that idea. And from listening to your podcast, it sounds like you do it. guys don't like it either. So I uh, do note some things. Uh, again, like we were talking about earlier, I view this as in context of understanding the passage as a whole. That is mission number one. Um, mission number two is, oh, let me make it easier for myself to find relevant information later. So sometimes I will box uh, people who are discussed, so I know exactly where they started talking and usually where they ended. But that's just for future reference. When it comes to line-specific questions, it sounds like you'd have to look at the question first, find out what lines they're referring you to, and then go back and note them before you start reading the passage. I'm not sure what notation they would have for a line-specific question. I wish I 
understood this question better. I think, I mean, he said he has the Bibles, right? He's got the power, he's got the, Bi- yeah, logic Bible study books. <laughs> um, yeah. I'm pretty sure he's referring to PowerScore. And if, if yeah. he has the reading comprehension Bible, I mean, I know what those PowerScore material, I used to teach PowerScore class and I, I, okay. I know what yeah. the, I mean, it's just, this, I always make a joke about it actually in, in my classes because I, I just thought it was ridiculous how much notation they had on the, on the, on the passage. I mean, there's just like mm-hmm. half of it is underlined and half of it is circled. And then there's all these like notes in the margins and these little bulleted numbered lists and stuff. And um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, so we've talked about this before. Ben does some notation. I do absolutely zero notation. I don't find any notation to be helpful at all. That's me personally. That's my mm-hmm. method. So um, I don't, I don't know. No, a notation technique for a line specific question. No, if it says in line 32, why did the author, you know, use the word whatever, I would think about it for a second before I would even go back to the passage. And I would see if I could remember what the author had been saying at that point when they used that word. Frequently, I can remember because I, you know, I, I paid attention to the argument. And so lots of times I won't even need to go back to the passage, but that if I do go back to the passage, I'll usually go back, what do you think, like three or four lines ahead of whatever number they gave you? Yeah, and this is one where I would strongly suggest predicting the answer. If it's asking, I mean, I'm guessing, I mean, who knows what it, you could have a variety of line specific questions, but a lot of them are like, what's the purpose of this? Yeah. And it's something that you should be able to say, well, let me see here, before you get biased by their answers, um, it's just like a role question in logical reasoning. Is it a premise for something? Is it a conclusion based on something else? Is it just providing context? Is it a concession? Is it someone yeah. else's opinion? Like these are all things that you can, with broad strokes, have a general idea and at least get you in the right direction, so that you don't waste time on stupid answers that are going in the opposite it direction. Just it's you know they are testing whether you comprehended it. So when they say in line thirty-two, why did the author use this word? You can go back, mm-hmm. you can reread that little section if you need to. And then before yeah. you look at the answer choices, well, what did it mean? What were they mm-hmm. talking about? Why did yeah. they use that word? What were they referring to when they used that word? Make a prediction, then go into the answer choices. Yeah. I noticed, he says one thing that we've talked about before. He says, I, I've noticed that with all sections of the LSAT, as soon as I get something wrong, I check the correct answer and it makes complete sense. And I already know the explanation as to why it is correct and why the others are incorrect. If that's happening, if you feel that way, studies have shown that you actually don't know what's going yeah. on. So part of this book that I'm reading is actually going into these studies is talking about the unknown unknowns and uh, how often we deceive ourselves just throughout the day yeah. and in particular when it comes to learning. So what I would start doing is before you grade your section, write a couple words next to the answer that you chose why it's better than the other one you were debating or underline words or whatever just commit to some rationale so that you can see what you were thinking before you saw that the correct answer was correct it's hindsight bias it's the same reason that everyone at the end of the day can say hey it makes total sense that the stocks dropped today but if you had asked them at the in the morning they would be like well i don't know we'll see i mean it might go down it might go up no one really knows how little they knew yeah all right, so we will uh, wrap it up there. Please uh, send us an email, help at thinkinglsat.com. That goes to both Ben and me. Um, 
We'll put uh, links in the show notes over at thinkinglsat.com. And uh, I guess that's it. Ben, you got anything? Last words? Uh, no, um, I don't hate all caps. <laughs> yeah, that was for emphasis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, awesome. Thanks for listening. Uh, we will be back at you soon. <laughs>